Bibles to Paul's letter to the Colossians. Now, one of the advantages of going through the Bible is, for the pastor anyway, is that he doesn't have to spend half his week trying to figure out what he's going to be preaching on the next week. But I get to subject myself to that two or three times a year. And one of them is the first message of the year. You like to get something special for the church uh, for the year, something to contemplate and and maybe hang your hat on uh, in a good way. And so I had my few days of struggle. <laughs> it wasn't too bad. And so uh, the Lord led me to the, to the letter here, uh, to the Colossians. And, you know, sometimes you're looking for something that will really be impactful. You know, you want like uh, a New Year's message to be impactful or uh, certain times of the years in the holidays we go through, you want, just, you want it to make an impression on the hearts of God's people. And, um, and there's no difference with this one. You always pray for that. Every message really has its purpose, just like every meal has its purpose in our lives. It adds strength and keeps us going forward. But I think this message, if understood and applied will change your life forever. It has changed my life to the degree that I understand it. And that is knowing the grace of God. And as I've said before, it's easily defined, but it's hard sometimes to understand and apply and live in as a believer. And this particular letter I was reading through it and making my notes, just I'm not really outlining it because I've already outlined it a number of times, just looking at some of the powerful words that Paul uses and just allowing it, just meditating and thinking on it. And the phrase that obviously jumped out to me uh, that I, as I was praying for direction, okay, there's a lot here, Lord, what, what do I focus on, right? Is in verse 6 where he says uh, that they had heard and knew the grace of God in truth. It is possible to misunderstand grace. It is possible not to understand the grace of God in truth. And so if we understand the grace of God in truth, we will be transformed and we will become different people. It is, it is that way. And so... I want to just read, if you'll stand with me, I'm going to read the first 12 verses. We're not going to hit all of them, but at least you'll have a context for the ones we do cover, verses essentially uh, 9 through 12. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brethren in Christ who are at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We give thanks to God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and your love for all the saints, because of the hope which is laid up for you in heaven, of which you heard before in the word of the truth of the gospel, which has come to you as it is in all the world and brings forth fruit as it is among you since the day you heard and knew the grace of God in truth. And you also learn from Epaphras, the dear fellow servant who is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf, who also declared to us your love 
in the Spirit. And for this reason, we also, since the day we heard it, do not cease to pray for you and ask that you would be filled with the knowledge of his will and all wisdom and spiritual understanding, that you might walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing him, being filled in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, strengthened with all might according to his glorious power for all patience and longsuffering with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in the light and has delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed us into the kingdom of his Son of his love in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. Father, we thank you for your word. We ask for your blessing upon it. In Jesus' name, amen. So Paul's letter here to the Colossians is an attempt by Paul to have the church focus on Jesus Christ as head of the church. He's the brain. He's the one that's calling the shots, delivering, as it were, the messages to the nervous system throughout his body. As believers, we are called to be, we are, whether we know it or not, rooted in Christ. We are alive in Christ. We are actually the hidden gems in the heart of God. Do you see yourself as a special jewel in the eyes and in the heart of God? And the Bible, as he declares in this epistle, we are complete in Christ. You and I do not need anything else but Jesus Christ in our lives. He is sufficient for every emotional need, every spiritual need, any, any kind of need that we may have. We no longer need to search for someone or something else. It's Jesus plus nothing for you and for me. But there are those who are not satisfied with Jesus alone. They have to seem to have to add something to it. And if that is the case, if someone is not content with Jesus alone then that is an actual revelation that that person is not actually responding to the grace of God in a proper way. So our consideration this morning as we prepare for another year of walking with the Lord is that my desire, and I think it's the Lord's desire, is that we all be successful in the Lord. And what success is means that we walk in the spirit, in the victory over sin, over the world that he's provided for us in the person of Christ. See, being successful as a Christian doesn't mean nothing bad ever happens. It just means that God is with you and you respond accordingly to his grace. You, you've learned and understood the grace of God properly. So these Colossian believers were fruitful, and they were joyful. And this is an important uh, attribute of those who are walking in victory. There's going to be joy. I have to ask myself on occasion, as David says in the Psalms, why art thou cast down, my, O my soul? <laughs> you know, King James has a way of putting it, doesn't it? But you wonder sometimes, why am I sad? Why am I not happy? Well, then you have to you start begin to do that inventory, and you begin to search your spirit and your heart. What's going on? 
These people were fruitful because they understood the grace of God in truth. And we will be fruitful as well. So we understand that. Pastors are to, as Paul noted here, uh, to warn uh, the believers, to teach and instruct the believers in order to present them mature in Christ. This is what instruction does. This is why we teach the Bible. Pastors are basically teachers. It's a teacher-pastor gift. There's the preaching, yes, but the, the Christian doesn't need to be preached at. He's already received the proclamation of the gospel. He needs to be taught. He needs to be instructed Know how to apply the grace of God. Understand what the grace of God is, for example. In this letter, Paul uh, demonstrates the preeminence of Christ. And he wants to encourage these people to keep Jesus first. That's the exhortation to us this morning and every day this year. Keep Jesus first in your life. You know, Paul had learned grace. He modeled it incredibly in his service to the church in the first century there. He understands that the love of God will transform the worst of sinners because he was, as he called himself, the chief of sinners, a murderer of God's people, and yet God so transformed his life. He knew the power of the gospel. So this letter of exhortation uh, was to a people that he had never seen before, and I think that's amazing. Paul had never been to Colossae. Colossae, if you look on your little Bible map, is south of um, Ephesus. And we know that he spent a great deal of time there in Ephesus. Uh, and it's a, good, a very good chance. And my, my thought is that uh, Colossae probably was a church plant out of the church there in Ephesus as Epaphras uh, was, as it seems, the founding pastor there. He was the one who, as we read there in verse 7, you learn from Epaphras these things. And so uh, he would, we know, uh, he was one who uh, was part of Paul's ministry team. He was with Paul in prison. Uh, he reported back and forth. Uh, you'll find him in Philemon, the letter to Philemon. So there's quite a connection there. But he had a powerful testimony, and it's believed uh, by many that he was the one who planted that church. And so Paul, as we've read there in verse uh, 3 and 4, uh, their testimony. And this, is a, this should mark our lives as well. Just four simple things. We won't spend a lot of time on it. But their testimony was their faith, their ability to believe God for the impossible, to call upon his name and to trust him for great and mighty things that they didn't understand. They were people that really loved God and had faith in Jesus. Not only did they love God, but they loved each other. It says, the love of the saints, your love for all the saints. And that's the mark of a Christian, is it not? Jesus said, by this all men shall know that you are my disciples, that you give lots of money to charity. <laughs> Doesn't say that, does it? By this the world shall know that you are my disciples, if you have what? Love one for another. Their love for the saints. And then their hope in, of heaven, isn't that what we all long for? Because that's where we're all headed in Jesus' name, right? And then their fruit. And I think fruit in a person's life is one of the greatest evidences of the truth of the gospel, that there is no other way to heaven. Just the testimony of all the people who have been converted to Christ over all the centuries should be proof enough that 
that the gospel is a true message from God. No other religion can boast of such conversion. No other religion can boast of such fruit. Only the gospel of Christ can boast. And that boast belongs to God himself. But also the fruit that's in an individual life. If they're, how do you know if someone's really saved? You know them, as Jesus said, you know them by their fruit. A good tree doesn't bear bad fruit, and a bad tree doesn't bear good fruit. So by their fruits, you shall know them. And so this is, again, the fruit that was coming out of the lives of these people in this church was good fruit and glorifying to God. So what kind of fruit, what does that fruit look like? Apples, oranges? No, it was one, it was, they were, these people were changed the gospel transforms. The gospel changes us. We are not the same. As we continue, in this, we will always make progress. Might be slow. Might not be as fast as we'd like it, but we will always be making progress in the Lord. We're transformed. We're changed. We cannot remain the same. And I'll explain that in a little bit here. As a result of that change, they had good works. It wasn't just about me anymore or my stuff. It was about good works and helping others. And then again, as he said, this sincere love that they had for people. And so the presence of good fruit is always the confirmation of conversion, without which people, we have a right to doubt whether someone is saved. But then there are those who, as uh, Jesus laid out in the parable of the sower, uh, there are those who receive the ground uh, the, the seed on thorny ground, they are, they are choked out because of the cares of the world and they become unfruitful. doesn't mean necessarily that they're not saved, but they're just, there's no fruit because they uh, have too many other cares outside what's most important, that is the idea of spiritual growth and <clears throat> nurturing themselves in the faith. So grace, the unmerited favor of God, it's not... God does not relate to us on the basis of our performance. What we do or what we don't do. You know, as it's been said by Dr. Heiser, I love this line, it's just powerful. What you cannot gain through moral excellence, you cannot gain through moral failure. We don't relate to God on the basis of our performance. We relate to him on the basis of grace or we really don't relate to him. He still loves us and he's still going to watch over us. But if we want to have a deeper walk and communion with him, walking in the spirit, we'll learn grace. We'll, we'll develop an understanding for it. And so what we quickly find out when we begin to relate to God in grace is that everything that God has for you and for me is in the person of Jesus Christ. Nothing comes to us apart from Jesus. Jesus said he would take things from the Father and he would give them to us by the Spirit. And the Spirit would not bear witness of himself, but of me. And so there we have the, the Trinity working together to bring about the knowledge of God to us. And so really, in reality, the more that we know the Lord, the more that we're going to understand and appreciate his grace. And so their response to understanding the true grace of God uh, was that they heard it with understanding. You know, you can hear it, but not get it, which is unfortunate. But they, they heard it and they got it. And they knew uh, the grace of God through personal experience. And as a result, their lives were transformed. And they learned it because it was modeled for them. 
Sometimes grace isn't taught as much as it's caught, just kind of like ministry. Sometimes we don't really understand ministry, but we catch ministry by watching other people do it. And the same thing is with grace. It can be modeled, and in their case, it was modeled by Epaphras. He was a faithful minister, and he declared uh, to Paul, hey, these people love the Lord. They love each other, and, and this was a great witness uh, for the church. But they were just like us. You know that, right? The Colossians were just like us. They were sinners. Sinners saved by grace. Now, I believe that this is uh, the starting point in understanding our salvation. It comes by faith and faith alone apart from works. If you feel still trying to be good enough for God, you're failing the grace of God. You're not going to get it. You've got to relate to God on the basis that you know you don't deserve one thing from God. Because you're not worthy. But he's made us worthy. He's qualified us, the Bible says, to be partakers of inheritance, to, to receive everything because of what happened in the day of our salvation. And as you, for those of you who are familiar with Romans, Paul lays out that treatise of salvation in just in an incredibly academic way, but a most powerful way. But it's fairly easy to see, even for the casual reader, that he's broken down salvation uh, as it relates to time, past, present, and future in, re in regards to uh, the, the believer. Uh, in our past, uh, we were justified uh, from our sins. When we believed on the Lord Jesus Christ at some point in the past, we realized that we were dead in sins, trespasses, and we asked the Lord to forgive us. He did, instantaneously. We were justified, and you can break that down if you want to remember what that really means. It's putting us in a position before God just as if we'd never sinned. That's how God now sees us in Christ. Positionally, in Christ, we are justified. We're no longer uh, under the penalty of sin. It's been released the blood of Christ. And then in the present mode, and that would be chapters 4 and 5 of Romans if you're taking notes, chapters 6 through 8, Paul spends his time talking about sanctification, the present work that happens in our life from the day that we become Christians until the day the Lord takes us home to be in his presence. The present work of the Holy Spirit is to sanctify us, and the word sanctify simply means to set apart. God is in the business of setting us apart from our sin nature, number one, its power and influence over our lives, but also setting us apart from the world and the love of the world, which is very destructive to uh, the believer. And then the last one, which we know nothing of at this point, is the future, and that is glorification. At some point, uh, we're going to leave this body in this realm of sin, and we're going to enter into glory where there is no sin. Our past, our present, our future are all taken into consideration by God for our salvation. It covers all of time. And so we can rest that there's never a moment in your life that God takes a break from preparing you for eternity. That's what this life is all about. He's preparing us for what's coming, and it's going to be awesome. So our past, as I said, is met with justification. The atoning death of Christ, his shed blood takes care of that. The penalty of sin paid. We don't have to pay that. Jesus did it for us. Sanctification is, the, as again, the present work of God through the Holy Spirit. 
setting us apart. We must understand this, and this is what I want to spend my time on here, uh, this, and then at the end, prayer. It's so important that we understand the process of sanctification. What does it mean that God is setting us apart for himself? You see, I still have this old nature that's within. When you become a Christian, your old nature uh, is not removed from you. You are given a new nature, which according to John's letter in 1 John, he says that new nature in you cannot sin because it's born of God. And you say, well, wait a minute, I still make mistakes. Well, of course you do. It's not, but that's not your new man. That's, that's the old man. That's the sin nature that's still there. Paul uses that analogy of, as it were in Romans, of dragging around an old, a dead corpse. You know, that's what your old, you know, your old man is. Your old fallen nature is a dead, dead corpse. Kind of stinks. Kind of rotten. Kind of bad. But we are going to, the process of sanctification is to deal with the influence of the old man. It's deliverance, as it were, from the power of sin. The penalty of sin satisfied at justification. The power of sin is what sanctification is all about. God wants to deliver you and me from that influence of sin. And I I said glorification is completely deliverance from the presence of sin. It's a wonderful future that you and I have. So the starting point with sanctification, I believe, is to break it down a little bit and understand the difference between forgiveness and cleansing. Those are very important things to, to know and understand. We read in 1 John, if you'll pull that up, 1 John 1, 9, where a lot of us quote this, I do, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now, we have King David to thank for this illustration of how this applies. And uh, I'm not glad David went through this, but I'm glad that it was written so that we could learn from his mistake and how this thing of forgiveness and cleansing works uh, in our lives. In Second Samuel 12, and this would be verse 13 or so, um, David was confronted by Nathan. Uh, he had this nice little uh, parable that he laid on David, and David stepped right into it and, and, and was caught and confronted with his own sin. And the first thing David did in, after being confronted with, you are the man, he said, I have sinned against the Lord. And look what David, Nathan said to him, the Lord has put away your sin. You shall not die. So you see, that's our position. God has put away our sin. That's justification. We shall not die. We're not going to die and pay the penalty for sin. Jesus did that, right? So shortly after this confrontation, David penned Psalm 51. And many of us are familiar with Psalm 51. We won't go through all of it, but you can turn there. It would be good because there's some good uh, gleanings uh, for us in Psalm 51.
he, in verse 2, David says, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin. Notice as we read there in 1 John 1, 9, it is, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive and to cleanse, right? So when we ask the Lord to forgive our sins, instantaneously we are forgiven. We are forgiven positionally in Christ, but experientially as we live in our experience from the day of salvation till glory, we have to confess, we have to apply the finished work of Jesus Christ. We confess our sins. We're forgiven. And if we forget, forget to, you know, to confess our sins, we're still covered in one sense. Because we're positionally we're in Christ. It is the cleansing part that is so, critically to be, so critical that we understand. It is... Look at the words that he's, he uses. He uses washing, wash me, cleanse me. On over to the uh, verse 7, purge me. Verse 10, critical, creating me a clean heart. And then verse 12, restore to me the joy of your salvation. 14, deliver me from the guilt of bloodshed. You see, this is, David isn't asking for forgiveness here. He's got that. Nathan said, God has put away your sin. What's David's struggle here? He's feeling the, the guilt, the condemnation, the yuck of unrighteousness that fills our lives when sin is not completely dealt with. What we need after we've been forgiven is a complete bath in the word of God to let him just wash away the defilement of our minds, our spirits, our souls. Washing, cleansing, purging, creating within us a clean heart. You know, sometimes you ask, you know, someone injures you and you forgive them, but then you, you, you just so, oh, and you feel like, well, I'm asking to forgive me. Well, they're forgiven and, and you have forgiven them. But what's the issue? The issue is you need to be washed you need to be purged from this. You need to let the Holy Spirit use the word to just wash that from your spirit. God's put it away. You just need to be washed of it. Both of us, you and I, need to be washed from it. The result of that is going to be joy. Restore to me the joy of my salvation. So, see, that's why joy is such a barometer in our lives. If I don't experience joy and and walk in joy. I'm not talking about putting on a smiley face and faking it. I'm talking about real joy. The joy of the Lord is my strength. That kind of joy should be in all of our lives because we are being transformed by the living God. His spirit dwells with us. This is what it means to walk in the spirit. It's not complicated. So David wanted deliverance. He was haunted by this influence of sin. He was haunted by his, by the condemnation and this you know, he not only committed adultery, but he committed murder, bloodshed, the guilt of bloodshed. Humankind was never created to ever bear guilt. We're not able to handle that. Nobody can remove guilt from their spirit. Nobody can take away the effects of sin on their soul and their mind and their heart. You can't do it. I can't do it. 
Only God can forgive sins. Only God can renew the mind. Only God can wash Persian clean, give us a clean heart. Nothing else will work but God's grace upon us. See, if you understand the grace of God in truth, you get that. I think one of the things that's misunderstood about sanctification is how it works. Is it passive? In, the, in what I mean by that, God does, it all, God does it all to us, and we just kind of yield, and he does all the work. That would be like the person who says, well, I accepted Jesus, and I confess my sins, and I know I'm forgiven, and I'm going to heaven, and well, then that's the end of that. I don't know about you, but since I was converted a number of years ago, I've made a few mistakes along the way, and I've committed some sins, and there's been re- rebellious attitudes and other things that I don't care to mention that I've had to repent from. I don't think a Christian's ever done, quote, repenting, turning to God and, you know, hey, this is wrong. This is what we're talking about here. But, it, you know, on the other hand, is it, is it active? I've got to do it all. I think it's both. I think it's active passivity. I know that sounds like an oxymoron, but it's not. It's active in the sense that the Holy Spirit is convicting me it, that's his job. I'm passive and I'm letting him convict me. I'm letting him work in my heart. It's active in a sense that I'm responding to him. I'm confessing if there's sin and I'm asking for cleansing and renewal. That's my job. And I am to give, as a child of God, I am to give God space and time to speak to my soul and to speak to my spirit. Some of us are so busy We are not giving God time and space to speak to us and to minister to us. We must do that. That's part of the active part. It's of vital importance that we do that. Have that interaction with God. So, the two things that need to happen for sanctification to be effective is the confession of my sin which is instantaneous, the forgiveness part, when I confess it. And it's just agreeing with the truth. And, and it's calling sin, sin, uh, as the Bible calls sin, sin. Not whitewashing it, but just this is the way it is. And I have done this, Lord, and I am wrong, and I am sorry. Please forgive me. And that is instantaneous, that forgiveness. But then taking the next step and asking him to cleanse me, to wash me, to purge me, to create within me a clean heart. That's so very important for us. Don't be treating sin as it's, well, it's all up to the Lord. He knows I'm just human, you know. Yeah, he does. He sure does know that we're just all human, and he wants to deal with that condition, (laughs) and I'm telling you how. And I think this is where it gets a little tough for some Um. They fall short in, in walking in sanctification because, number one, I don't think they underst- people don't generally understand the grace of God, how kind and gracious God is, and how merciful He is. And they just don't want to deal with it. It makes me uncomfortable. Well, I'm telling you, there's a lot of crises in life. There's a lot of situations in life that make us uncomfortable. But it's when you actually deal with those with God's help that you come through it and you're changed. So it's not something we should uh, fear. You actually kind of get used to it after a while. 
Uh, you don't like it. I mean, as a little kid, did you like taking a bath? It's like pulling eye teeth to get the kids in the tub sometimes. Get in there, get in there, you're, you're dirty. Sometimes we just need to get in the tub and wash, right? Well, sometimes we you know, just got to learn to get used to that. So, I believe every spirit-filled believer is taught by the Holy Spirit to deal with sin. And I think it's critical to have a good understanding of it. I think sanctification is progressive. And what I mean by progressive, that it's an ongoing process of life. It will not stop until we leave this earth. So, you know, get used to it. And you'll be fine, right? We, I believe we have to cooperate with the Holy Spirit. Uh, and actually, to the degree that I cooperate with Him, is to the degree that I will have success. And what I mean by success is the freedom to walk in the Spirit and be filled with the Spirit and have joy. Know the will of God. Not, because to the, to the degree that I yield to the Holy Spirit is to the degree that I am walking in the light. And to the degree that I resist Him, because a Christian can resist the Holy Spirit's conviction. And to the degree that I resist that, I am in darkness in that area. And if I continue in that stubbornness, then that, the enemy can use that to build a stronghold in my life. I may have, issue, have no issues in other areas of my life, but this one area where I may be, or maybe I'm more than one area, that I'm resisting God's invasion to allow the light to shine on it, to bring me to confession and cleansing. If I fail to do that, I'm going to remain in darkness. I'm not going to see. It's going to become a blind spot. And we're not going to be as free as God would want us to be. And so we learn the grace of God and truth that, that God isn't angry with me. He understands my frame that I'm but dust. But he's teaching me to be real and honest and humble before him. Yeah, that's bad and that's ugly and I am so wrong and I am sorry, God. Please wash me. Please cleanse me. That is how it works. You see, I believe that that's the difference between a carnal Christian and a spirit-filled Christian. Well, what do you mean there's carnal Christians? Yeah. I think that's kind of what we have when we talk about the thorny ground here, the cares of this world. They're just spending all their time on stuff that's really not eternal. They don't really have an eternal perspective on life that God would choose for them to have. And they're more concerned about the horizontal level of life. Therefore, they're unfruitful. The carnal Christian doesn't gain victory over the fallen nature because he isn't willing to deal and walk through these steps of sanctification. I've already, hey, I'm forgiven. What's the big deal? God doesn't really care. And they begin to treat sin. They allow sin in their life, and they begin to call it a liberty, or I've got a license. I'm free to do this. Leave me alone. You're judging me. Well... There's a bondage with that. And so I think it's important that we you know, give God space and time. And this is what it, it's all about. I w- actually, we're not going to have time to... We could, tr- we could plumb, plumb the depths of this passage, but I want to spend with the last bit here talking about how to sustain. 
and how to maintain this relationship of allowing the Holy Spirit to sanctify us and set us apart. Because I think when Paul mentioned this back here in Colossians 1, immediately when he, after talking about Epaphras and talking about the grace of God in truth, he, go, he go, launches into prayer. See, when Paul, like any of us who are taught by the Spirit, when we see deficiency, what are we supposed to do? When we see deficiency in our own lives, what do we, what do we normally do? God, help me. <laughs> I'm a train wreck here, man. Whoa, help me. When, when there's deficiency in the church, we're to give ourselves to prayer. And so this is, this is how Paul prayed when he saw things that needed to be done or needed to be added or dealt with, he, he gave himself to prayer. And there, um, I, I just actually, I, I just think without an effective prayer life, 2023 will be a train wreck for us. It's just that simple. Amen. If we are not willing to give ourselves to prayer, I know some people think it's kind of weird that we pray the way we pray on Sunday mornings and we take that quiet time. I don't think any of you think that, but I'm sure there's people that have visited. Well, well, that's kind of uncomfortable in there. I don't know if I like that. You know, you, 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 know, you don't hear that, but I can hear that. <laughs> that's right. We just cry out to the Lord, you know. <laughs> I want to encourage you to, be, lest I forget to encourage you to, to do this, read through these first few verses again, sometime during the week in your devotion. Just allow it to, to speak to your heart. It, it's just a great little passage. But Paul here is really teaching these people, and he's teaching us how to pray. See, he didn't necessarily just pray about physical things, and those things are important, but they're not as important as the bigger picture. Paul prays with the big picture in mind. You know, don't you wonder sometimes how we how to pray? Like, whoa, I don't know how to pray about that. Or how should, what, you know, you just don't, like, have an understanding on how to approach certain situations. Thank God for the gift of tongues, you know. <laughs> but how to pray, and how do we pray for certain people? How do we pray for our fellow believers? How do we pray for ourselves? Well, what is prayer? First of all, prayer is petitioning it is praising, it is giving thanks, it is making confession to God. But you are addressing God, not the people in the room in a corporate setting. You're not informing the people about what's going on in so-and-so's life, but you're talking to God. And I really like to encourage people, when you pray, make sure you're talking to God and not me. Because I can't help you, but he can, you know. <laughs> and it's not the posture of the body that matters, right? We know that. You know, it, we're not asking people to get down on their knees or, or make a spectacle of themselves. It's not the posture of the body. It's the posture of the heart, right? And so Paul met the burdens of his heart with prayer, and that's what we do. What's, what, what's on your heart? What, what are you carrying? Now, if you're carrying sin, we, we, just, we pretty much mentioned how you deal with that. But what about the cares? Paul had such care for the church, the spiritual growth, the maturation, the development, the protection. You remember his last time that they met with the Ephesians elders in, in, in Acts 20, he warned them about wolves that would come in, rising up from within the church and also coming from without. He was burdened by that. He gave himself to prayer. We have to 
to meet our burdens with prayer. And as he says there in verse 9, we did not cease to pray for you. It's just, a, you know, well, I prayed about that once. I should have covered it. No, there's, there's an enemy. There's an unseen realm. We're at war. You do think he's, the enemy's going to back off because, oh, look, he prayed. Oh, no. They might, your prayers, we hinder, we pull down the strongholds. We hinder the foes of darkness. But that doesn't stop them f- from coming. They'll come back. They'll continue to seek to destroy, scheme, any way they can mess up the people of God. In fact, that's his main target. Is he knows he can't take us back. No one snatches us out of the Father's hand, right? No one's able to do that. Greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. We don't have to worry about that. But what he does try to do is make us unfruitful. He tries to soil our testimony, as it were, before one another and before the world. So this is his attempt, his schemes against us. We've got to pray. We've got to put on the armor, and we've got to pray with, and enter into the battle. And why do we pray? We pray Scripture. We pray God's thoughts. We think about what we're reading, and then we pray. Because we know that when we pray God's Word and what's on His heart, we know we're automatically we're in the will of God, and it's going to happen. That's what's neat about that. According to Ephesians 6, 18, if you're taking notes, you can look up that scripture, or 1 Corinthians 14 and 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 15. We pray in the Spirit, and we pray with understanding. That's the kind of prayer life that Paul had. And there's, you know, obviously more than just praying for our physical needs and the temporal things of life. We are, if we pray the spiritual, we know that they are eternal. You know, I kind of liken it like, you know, like our children, you know, when they're younger, you, you, you sort of, uh, they're confined to uh, play in certain areas like their bedroom or maybe the backyard where it's fenced in and, you know, they just, you just can't trust them beyond that, right? Um, and I think sometimes when we just pray on this level here, the horizontal level, we're like the, our little children. We, we, do, we have to raise our, our sights to the heavenlies. And as we read through some of these epistles that Paul talked about, our, our citizenship is in heaven. And we have to begin to pray on an eternal level. See, that's what God is preparing us for, for eternity. He's using this as a boot camp, if you will, to prepare us for what is coming. We're going to rule and reign We're going to exercise authority as sons and daughters of God. He's teaching us about authority. He's teaching us how to to live our lives in the kingdom. That's what it's about. And so in the scriptures, you're going to find, of course, individual prayer. But you're also going to find corporate prayer. And this is why we do what we do in our church here. And we're going to continue to do that because it's effective. And it's obedience to Christ. So... I think I've reduced it, uh, not really I, but I put it in four areas of Paul's prayer here, verses 9 through 12. The first thing he prayed for was to be filled with the knowledge of God's will. Now, he started the epistle by saying he was an apostle according to the will of God. It's pretty important that you are in the will of God. Do you think that's kind of important? I think that's very important. You are here, 
attending this church because you are in the will of God. Isn't that a wonderful thing to be in the will of God? Such confidence, such peace, such joy, such goodness comes into our lives when we are in the will of God. It's, um, you don't want to do anything else, right? It is that wonderful. So he prayed to be filled with the knowledge of God's will. And essentially what he's saying here is, I don't want you to be ignorant. As a pastor, the last thing I want to be present in this church is ignorance of God's will. Ignorance of spiritual things. Ignorance of how sanctification works. Ignorance of the second coming of Christ. Ignorance of the gifts of the Spirit. That's why we teach the Scriptures so that you might be filled with the knowledge of God and knowledge of His ways, understanding His purpose, His plans, and wanting, being in complete cooperation and yieldedness to Him. So when He speaks to you to do something, you can say, yes, Lord, your servant hears, and I will do as you say. You, why is ignorance such a plight in the church? Paul uses that word a lot. Brother and I would not want you to be ignorant concerning the coming of our Lord. Why did he have to address that? Because there was ignorance. And ignorance is a source of error. It always leads to instability. You don't really know. It's insecurity. It's sorrow. But we are to teach the knowledge of God. Now he notices that, he clarifies that, in all wisdom and spiritual understanding. He likes using those words, by the way. The second thing he prayed for in regards to the Colossian church that he'd never seen before only because of what Epaphras had told him is that they would walk worthy of the Lord so not only did he pray for fullness that they would understand the fullness of God's will but he's praying for them to be fruitful to walk worthy of the Lord in pleasing God in fruitfulness that's essentially what he breaks down there increasing in the knowledge of God you see the knowledge of God is the highest form of knowledge that man can attain. Oh, but what about pi r squared to the 19th power? <laughs> I mean, what that means, but <laughs> that knowledge is one thing, but the knowledge of God is the most important knowledge that you and I can obtain. And isn't it wonderful? It's not limited to the extremely smart people. It's, it's God lets himself be known to, to the lowest of the low. If, you, if we will humble ourselves and just, Lord, show me who you are. Reveal your way to me. You know what he'll do? He'll show himself to you. He'll reveal himself to you because he loves you. And he wants you to know him. That's the neat thing about it. Lord, I just want to know you. I think that's one of the first prayers when you get first converted. It's like, I don't get this. Lord, help me understand. And boom, he starts dropping it on you. Praying for the knowledge of God. Praying for the fruitfulness. The third thing is he prayed for is to be strengthened with all might. To be filled with the knowledge of God's will, to walk worthy of the Lord, and to be strengthened with all might according to what? Grace. God's riches at Christ's expense. The unmerited favor of God. I don't know if God wants to help me because I've been such a knucklehead this week. How could he possibly bless me? Because he's not relating to you on the basis of your knuckleheadedness. 
He's relating to you on the basis of who He is, and that is grace. Isn't that wonderful? And then you really feel like a knucklehead after you realize you've been a knucklehead, right? (laughs) Enough with the knuckleheads. Okay. Strengthened with all might according to grace. And this is what the strength is for. You're going to love this about as much as I loved it. For all patience. (laughs) For all long-suffering. With joy. I'm glad you guys don't struggle with patience. We all do, don't we? Why not now? Why do I have to wait? Can I have it now? That's just the way we are. We don't. There's something about actually exercising patience is suffering long. Waiting on God is a, is, there's suffering there. It mortifies your flesh because you want it now. And you learn to die to that. So in that waiting, in that patient waiting, we learn God's faithfulness. And so that's really what he was praying for. He prayed for faithfulness. Because see, that's what's being tested while you're waiting. Are you going to wait on me? Or are you going to try to do it your way? Ooh. Going to jump the gun? Or are you going to wait? The scripture's full of examples. We, we know what happened to Peter, you know, trying to, protect the, trying to protect the Lord. Sword. I was, he, I'm not going for the ear. I'm going for the head, but it just got your ear. You know what are you going to do, Peter? You're going to take out the whole, all the Jews that are against Jesus? You know, it doesn't work that way. It doesn't work that way. The last thing that we have to include in our prayer is, and never forget this, give thanks. Paul talks about that, verse 3, and then he talks about it there at the end of this text that we're covering this morning. Giving thanks, verse 12. Give thanks to God, give thanks to the Father. Allow your life to be filled with thanks. This is what it's about. I believe if we give ourselves to prayer, we give God space and time. And allow him to sanctify us through confession of our sin, through allowing him to cleansing us and making us a new, clean heart daily. We will do incredible things for the Lord under the influence of his spirit. It will be unbelievable what God will accomplish. I hope and pray that we have a fruitful year. A glorious year. I could care less. I probably care more, but I could care less about what's going on in the world. But I'm not intimidated by that. I'm tired of the noise. It's just noise. I'm tired of noise. Why do I want to listen to noise when I can hear the voice of God? I have the voice of God right here. What's more important, the knowledge of God or what's going on in the world? The choice is mine. I'm not 